Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 228 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I'm very excited that, uh, well, for two reasons today. Number one, uh, that we're doing more than just four episodes a month for the most part these days. And number two, that uh, today's Thursday release features, uh, well, a regular guest now on the podcast and just an amazing leader and fantastic person and friend, Craig Rochelle. And uh, when Craig's Hope in the Dark released, uh, we touched base and I said, I would just love to talk to you about how to process like pain and grief and loss. And man, we go all over the place in this interview. I don't know how many of you have read Sam Chan's book, but uh, at the very beginning of Leadership Pain, Craig tells a story uh, just about some like kind of self-inflicted wounds that happened early in his leadership. I think we all have our share of those. And it's a powerful, powerful segment of the interview. And then we jump into his latest book, Hope in the Dark, which is just an amazing resource. And uh, we talk about the content, how to process grief with your congregation, uh, how do you set expectations properly, and so much more. So I think you're going to love it. Craig Rochelle really needs no introduction. He is the founding pastor of Life Church. And uh, they have been leading the way for so many leaders for so many years. And he's a New York Times bestselling author of multiple books and just a, just a great guy. I've enjoyed all the time that I've spent with Craig and, and today's no exception. And hey guys, I just want you to think a little bit about what's coming up because we got Christmas coming up. And I said to Craig, like Hope in the Dark is going to be a book that I gift on a regular basis. You may want to think about that. And then also, we are coming into the first Christmas season where Didn't See It Coming is available. And so many of you have been so encouraging with the book. And so uh, if you head on over to didn'tseeitcomingbook.com, if you haven't got a copy yet, you can get yours. And it's my book on overcoming the seven greatest challenges that no one expects and everyone experiences. And it's all those things that just kind of sink people. It's not just a leadership book. I thought I was writing a leadership book. No, this has turned into a people book. So maybe there's someone on your list that would love a book for Christmas or another leader or you want to gift your team or that kind of thing. Head on over to didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. And this is the first Christmas the book is available. We're really excited for that. And uh, if you want to know the impact it's having on people, just head over to Amazon, click through to Amazon and read through the reviews. We're pushing 300 reviews now. And it's just amazing to see how people are having emotional reactions to some of the subjects that we cover. Things like cynicism and compromise, burnout, emptiness. It's just these seem to be the universal things that define our age and who we are as people, but they don't need to, not in a negative way. So that's what the book's all about. Anyway, uh, head on over to didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. You can learn a lot more. And if you want to buy them for the team, there are bulk sales available through Amazon and through other places like Givingtons and so on. So we'd love to help you with that. Hey guys, uh, without further ado, let's jump into a powerful, raw, and real conversation with my friend, Craig Rochelle. Well, Craig Rochelle, welcome back to the podcast. It's amazing to have you again. Carrie, I love being on with you, man. I'm a big fan of your podcast, your work, your uh, content is amazing. And uh, your new book, man, it's just, it's uh, fantastic. Congratulations on on uh, all the, the different ways you're impacting lives. You were telling me you're halfway through the audio version. So that, that means a I lot. Am. Yeah, yeah, I like, I like uh, of course, I uh, did, you know, worked in it ahead of time to, give it a review, but now I'm in the audio, uh, enjoying it in the gym the way I like to, just uh, going through it slowly. It's really, we, really we well all done. do that. Um, and I, I, I got to ask you a question. Um, is this a bad time to have the conversation? This You, you were listening to the uh, <laughs> Never Split the Difference podcast. <laughs> you picked up. You picked up on that. <laughs> yeah. And I must say, you put me over the edge on audiobooks because you've told me a couple times that that is your number one way to consume. And I've been like podcast, 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 but I flipped the switch a couple months ago. And the first one I listened to, leaders, if you have not heard, first of all, if you haven't heard Craig's podcast, you better subscribe. I never miss an episode. 
But you started adding bonus episodes, and yeah. I think your first was with Chris Voss from Never Split the Difference. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. And it, it, that's a great book. It's, I've, I've listened to that one three times, which is, I don't do that often. It, it's, it's really yeah. well done. So, so then I'm not going to put you on the spot if I say, why did I start off? And I mean, that was a joke, but why would, if I just called you out of the blue, why would I not say, hey, Craig, is this a good time to talk? Because it, when, when you give me the freedom to say no up front, that actually helps me feel empowered. And therefore, I'm more open to talk to you, which is, is counterintuitive. But that's what, uh, that's what Voss teaches. Bingo. I've shared um, the book with numerous friends who now, when I call them and I say, hey, man, is this a bad time? They're like, oh, stop it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I do that all the time now, too, because I always said, hey, is it a good time? And I that know. makes people feel more vulnerable. And, and so it's not a bad time. How do you expect I, me to do that? Another great now you question. Got, now you've got book. me solving your problem. Exactly. No, yeah. it's a fantastic book. It's a great interview. If you want the uh, the quick entry into some of the key principles, we'll link to that in the show notes on this one. But I had I had to play that game with you just for fun. Craig, I, we're going to talk about your new book, Hope in the Dark, which I think I on I think I would say yeah, I can say this. I've read a lot of books on suffering. It's my favorite, and Thank I'm going to be handing it out many, many, many times. But I want to go back to. Uh, a short piece that you wrote for Sam Chan's book a couple years ago, Leadership Pain. Um, mm-hmm. That book actually opens up with a couple of pages of you just sharing some of the the deepest pain that you went through as a young leader. And I think it's fair to characterize, characterize it as probably largely self-inflicted pain, just mm-hmm. early, early leadership mistakes that you made. Uh, you had to fire people. You almost had a church split early on over a theological difference when Life Church was very young. A tough relationship with a mentor ended early with his suicide. There's so many leaders. When I read that, I remember when the book came out, I was like, oh my gosh, like, wow, that's a lot to endure. Um, how did you as a leader experience God in those seasons, and we all have them, where the pain is self-inflicted? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Chan, first of all, his, his book is great. And it was uh, years and years ago, I, was, I heard him teach and he, he talked about having a pain threshold. And, and I never will forget, you know, he said, sometimes we, we inadvertently will keep our ministries, our organizations smaller because we're, we're so intent on avoiding pain that we don't step into the things that help create the growth and the momentum and such. And uh, he talked about how basically when you do more, you're going you're gonna to hurt more. And I remember just kind of crying all the way through that talk because I, I was hurting so much. Um, you, you ask, how did I you know, experience God's presence when the pain was self-inflicted? I, I, think, I think as much as any, anything, I experienced his grace. Uh, when, because you know, there's so many different types of pain, and a lot of what we go through is someone else's fault or because of sin and brokenness in the world. But sometimes we just bring it on ourselves. And it, it's, it's almost like double pain then. One, we have the pain of whatever we're facing, the bad consequence. And the second thing is the pain of our own bad decision, the, the regret, the guilt, the shame. Um, I, you know, I actually feel like sometimes I, f- I feel shame, ashamed of my bad decisions as a, a leader. And it could be simply a bad hire, bringing the wrong person on, but I'm, I'm embarrassed that I didn't see more clearly. I'm embarrassed that I didn't fix it earlier. And, and so... It's it's in those times where I brought it on that I I just I sense God you know showing me He He's forgiven me His grace is with me He still will sustain me, and the interesting thing is I don't know who said it, it wasn't me first but God never wastes a hurt or God never wastes a pain mm-hmm. I th- I think that so often uh, you, you know the leaders that we become is a direct result of the pain that we've endured and mm-hmm. I. I make fewer of those mistakes, the same mistakes today because of what I learned through the pain in the past. And so I wouldn't say God caused it all, but I know that God used it all to help shape me to become more like Christ and to become more effective as as a leader. You had a mentor speaking to your life when you were probably in your early 20s, mid 20s, starting Life Church or before starting Life Church. And you're expecting an encouraging word as mentors should give. And he looked you in the eye and said, Craig, God is going to break you. Yeah. And I had a similar experience in seminary. One of my favorite profs, we're talking about the Blue Jays. He just, you know, the weather, whatever, out of the blue, I think it was a prophetic moment. 
just put his hand on my shoulder, looked me right in the eyes and said, Carrie, God is going to use you, but before he uses you, he's going to break you. Mm. And for years I lived in fear. You know, every time there was a, a slight, you know, somebody dinged my car in a parking lot, I'd be like, is this the breaking Lord? Because I was <laughs> terrified of pain, right? But I think it happened for me, honestly, in my late 30s, early 40s and burnout, which I write about and didn't see it coming. And I'm a different man on the other side, like Jacob wrestled the angel, you know, and the angel mm-hmm. overcame. Um, how how has that moment, because there's a lot of leaders listening right now who listen to your podcast, read your books, follow you, who are like, yeah, you know what, honestly, I've got some self-inflicted stuff here. Because you can blame mm-hmm. the church, you can blame the board, you can, and sometimes it is external circumstances. Um, how does God use our breaking? Yeah, so so the the guy, the, my mentor is Gary Walter, and I sat across from him when he told me that it was before we started the church, and he, it was like a prophetic promise, and it was it was probably one of the most sobering, kind of like your seminary experience, Carrie, where you just I just believed it, and I had the same exact um, kind of scenario where every time something bad would happen, I would I, I would even ask him, is this it? Is, is this it? And, and <laughs> He said later on, he said, he said, when you really are broken, you won't have to ask if you've been broken. You'll, you'll know that God's gotten through, through you. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, there's great theologians who've quote, I can't tell you exactly who said it, but you know, those God uses greatly, he breaks deeply, something like that. And I, I, I really do believe in that. Peter is, you know, maybe one of the best examples in scripture, you know, the guy who, is probably the most brash and bold about ne- that he's never going to deny Jesus, that he's going to be faithful to him till the end. Even if all the other losers don't, Peter's, I'm in your corner, Jesus. And then three times he denies him. Well, who did who did God choose to be the guest speaker essentially on the day of Pentecost? And that was the one who'd failed greatly, but was forgiven much. And uh, I, th- I think that's the biggest thing. It, you know, so often people from a distance will think, the you know the most effective leaders tend to get it right the most often. I actually think the most effective leaders get it right after mistakes most often. <laughs> is that is that it's not that you make fewer mistakes than other people. It may even be that you make more mistakes, but you you recognize them early and you correct quickly. And that's really important. Is we want to learn because if, if we continue in the direction. Um, compounding a mistake, then it gets more and more complicated. But you want to recognize it early on, and then you want to correct it quickly. And and so I I think self-inflicted pain, mistakes, failures, I think those are often the catalysts that create the leaders and shape us to become who God wants us to become. When you look back on that season, which was a really dark season for you as a young budding leader, how did you not just throw in the towel? Because it was like beyond a trifecta. You had maybe four or five things happen at the same time with the death of a mentor, a staff exiting, an almost church mm-hmm. split. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a cluster. How did you just say, okay, clearly this is not for me. I'm done. I don't have the gifts. I'm throwing in the towel. It was chaos, but honestly, it's, it's still often chaos. The difference is... It's chaos in a mature organization. At that time, it was chaos in an infant um, organization. And so we weren't really sure if the boat would continue to float back then. So that's what made it more difficult. Uh, There's still, you know, I I always kind of say, um, sort of jokingly, but not, if you know, if you're not hurting, you're not leading. (laughs) And just the the more responsibility you have, the more um, complications tend to come with it. And so it's still chaos today. And it wasn't just that time, but now I'm 23, almost 23 years into live church and almost 28 years into full-time ministry. I would say that they're uh, semi-regularly, I, I don't think about like, seriously quitting, but I kind of look out the window and wonder, <laughs> uh, what if, if I wasn't on this train, what else would I do? And I actually don't mind doing that because mm. I think what it does is it helps me to choose to stay on the train. Uh, if it's not like I'm staying on here because I have to, but it's, but Hey, if I did do something else, what would it be? You know, I could do this. I could do that. I could do this. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be easier? And then it kind of regrounds me 
to the point I wasn't called to easy. I was called to do this, and and, and I'm called to to be faithful. And so, it um, you know, it wasn't just that time, but it's multiple times through the journey that I've you know never never really seriously said, hey, I think I might quit, but oftentimes I wonder what it would be like to do something else. And that that's proven to be a, a, um, a helpful tool to reground me over the years. I think that probably <clears throat> surprises a lot of leaders to hear you say that. And you could actually dig ditches, you know? Isn't that the biblical question? What am I going to do? Dig dishes, ditches? You could because you, you work out. I, I'd last <laughs> half a day and get fired. I don't but. like digging, but I could, I could probably <laughs> yeah. drive a big backhoe if I practiced could you and I don't I don't want to ask a question that that pokes too deeply at current stuff but could you give us cuz a lot of leaders you know and I've written about this we've talked about this they look at life church they look at you and go Craig has no issues you know he works out every day at 3:30 without <laughs> can you give us a glimpse into to what the chaos is right now it, there there's so much going on all the time that uh it's a real regular conversation in our home what do we need to change to kind of stay current mm-hmm. so you know, if you want me to be really transparent, I, I kind of will. The uh, the leadership end of it's always complicated. We, you know, this year um, we, we've been able to launch five new locations in five different states. That's kind of the easy part, wow. meaning that there's, I've just got great people, the systems are there, and that's, um, that does, that doesn't create a lot of wear and tear on me. There are other people that, that creates long hours for, but that's kind of the fruit of years and years of labor. Um, where I'm feeling the pressure is I feel like I'm hitting an emotional ceiling that uh, there's so many complications around me with people that I care about that emotionally I'm having to kind of dig deeper to um, have the capacity to handle all the situations. So I've got a couple of daughters married, um, a third one looking like she's heading that way. And I kind of thought I'd give my daughters away, but what I realized is I actually added son-in-laws that are <laughs> that are uh, you know um, that that are great, great godly men, but um, they're my children now too. And so I, I've, I'm not giving them away and get, getting easier. I'm I'm adding to the family and having more dynamics. And then uh, new generations of grandkids emerging into it. So there's just so many moving parts. And with six children recognizing the multiplication factor of we're just trying to stay on top of things right now. It's so hard to be in so many different places and deal with all the emotional yeah. complexities. So the way that hits me, Carrie, is um, spiritually, it seems like when I'm dealing with emotional issues, my it, it, it's like it draws on my spiritual battery. And so my spiritual battery gets low. Uh, what it used to take to charge it, it seems to take more now. And so I'm working longer hours, harder hours, and I'm also finding new ways to engage spiritually, um, and having I'm kind of having to put more work in to uh, keep uh, to keep the spiritual passion alive. I wish I could say it was the opposite, but it's that's the way it is. I appreciate that, and I think a lot of people can resonate with that. It's funny I'm I'm reading Eugene Peterson. We're recording this the week that you know we learned of his passing, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, and reading Paul Miller's book on prayer. And, you know, I would say I'm not very good at prayer. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you look at my spiritual gift inventory, it's third from the bottom, uh, slightly above mercy and helps. So the terrible intimidating when you're a, when you're a pastor and you're not good (sighs) at praying. (laughs) It's the opposite of what I should be. And it's not that I don't pray. And he, he gives a lot of permission in that book. Like, yeah, you're going to be scattered. You're going to be distracted because I'm 15 seconds in and I got a to-do list, you know? Mm -hmm. And, I, I think it's it's amazing that you're leaning in that direction. And I think it's when we check out. And, you know, we talked about the last the last time you were on the podcast, you just had a big milestone birthday. I passed it a couple of years ago. And I watched a lot of guys in their 50s when I was in my 30s kind of check out. You know what I mean? They just hit cruise mm-hmm. control. So mm-hmm. I, just, I just really admire the fact that you're leaning in and you're digging deep and you're flagging your own issues rather than having your team have to do it for you. Yeah, thank you. I think it's, um, you know, it, being surrounded with people who can speak openly into your life really matters. And so, you know, I've got good friends with me that are helping. I, I just think we have to fight for self-awareness. 
we have to fight to tell the truth because it's so easy to lie to ourselves. And as yeah. pastors, I, I think we we feel so much pressure to have the answers and have it together that that if we fake that, then we become inauthentic and then the battery drains quickly. And so I think there's a lot of power in, in transparency and self-awareness that really can help us stay spiritually connected to the vine when otherwise it is um, the the pull of this world is really strong and it, it's easy to, it's easy to get distracted. Mm. Well, like you said, when we were messaging back and forth about this podcast, feel free to ask the leadership questions. I do want to talk about Hope in the Dark because I think it's such a rich book, but well, I want you. to flag some of this for a future conversation. This is, this is already a very uh, rich time together. Um, about Hope in the Dark, it's, it's got a very unique story. I'm sure some of the leaders will already be familiar with the story. It's a book you wrote years and years and years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, that became very personal and never published, just like stuck it in a hard drive somewhere or whatever. Right. Um, but do you want to walk us through the story and of, of the original one and then why it became so relevant again last year? Sure. So um, Adrian and uh, Danny, they're a couple that uh, serve our church and uh, Adrian's on our team. They, they lost a baby. And so uh, I wrote what started out to be kind of a letter to their family and it it uh, they were really hurting and kind of rattled. And so it became kind of a long letter and I gave it to them years and years and years ago. And it really ministered to them in a, in a great way. And so I, I thought, you know, thank God you used it. And, and I left that on a computer. Uh, and then years went by and my second daughter, Mandy, was about to get married. And right before her wedding, she got mono uh, which we were pretty disappointed about just for her sake um, because we knew that would really complicate her wedding and her honeymoon. But we were 100% confident, give it a few weeks, you know, six, eight weeks at the most, and she'd be fully recovered. Well, she didn't recover. And in fact, she got a lot worse and had to quit her job and all, all sorts of complications. And I found myself really hurting for her as a dad in that and and kind of questioning God, why why now, why her, that kind of stuff. And so I thought, well, I'll read that letter I wrote for Adrian and Danny, just see see what I said to them and maybe it'll help me. And the letter that I wrote to them seemed like a letter somebody else wrote for me. Uh, I, I cried all the way through it. It really spoke to me. So I asked my um, publishers if I could, I sent them that letter and said, could I use that as a foundation to um, write a book in the middle of what we're going through with Mandy? Uh, as just a, a dad and a pastor who is asking the same questions that uh, people ask when they're hurting. And can I kind of document our journey through this and, and hopefully it'll um, create a resource that'll be helpful to people. And so that's that's how the book came about. Wow. And, you know, it's a very emotional book, uh, a very emotional book. And uh, I think it uh, it provides a real glimpse. And I think a lot of leaders I have, I'm a close follow on social. Not a stalker, but I, I read a lot of what you're doing. And was it last, was it earlier this year or last summer or maybe different times you called uh, that you asked for leaders, would you please pray for my daughter Mandy? Like you went out and got um, special treatment for her, best doctors mm-hmm. kind of scenario as any parent would want to do for their children. Um, do you want to bring us up to date on sort of the different stages you've kind of gone through with her because it's still unresolved, is it not? It is. You know, one of the most meaningful things to me, and I can't even put it into words how much it means, but people that I don't know all over, you know, in different parts of the country, when I bump into them somewhere um, that maybe know the story from social media or whatever, will ask and, I mean, genuinely say they've been praying for Mandy mm-hmm. and they know her by name. And it just, it, it you know, I can never express as a dad and as a Christian, how much it means to have the family of Jesus around the world, having different people pray for her, and then care enough to ask about her. So that that's so moving. Uh, so we've been to a lot of different doctors. She's on a um, a real natural treatment plan right now, and the she she may eat five or six things. I mean, it's super limited what she eats. Um, she does uh, some kind of retraining of her brain. She's got uh, takes you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of supplements a month. And the great news is, is that she's seeing some improvement. So uh, like last night, we had family photos and she was able to be up on her feet for about an hour and a half. And um, that was about enough, but that was something a year ago she couldn't have done. 
And so she can get out of the house and go do an activity, like go to church or something and not be in bed all the next day. So her baseline year over year is um, significantly better. Her, you know, the distance between now and her actually re-engaging in work is still is still quite a bit of distance, but we're thankful the trajectory is moving in the right direction and she's full of faith and so are we that, uh, that she's going to get back to, to full strength. One of the tensions you have to manage personally is this invitation, and we've all been there as Christians, as church leaders. I mean, I know we have a lot of business leaders listening too, but if you have any faith, you're in that space where you're praying to God I want you to heal my daughter. I want you to change this situation. And yet here we have an unresolved prayer. Mm-hmm. How have you in your family been able to manage that personally? It's been up and down. So as you know, because you've written books, uh, when you when you write a book, you turn it in early and often yeah. more than a year. So what I totally hoped was I turned the book in and then late in the process, I would add an extra chapter at the end and say, now here's the here's the end of the story and she's better now. And I fully expected to do that and that didn't happen. And so now here we are two, almost two and a half years later and there's still no resolution. The, you know, there are times when uh, we're kind of above that in our faith and there are other times when honestly, you, you just start wondering, is she ever gonna get through? And so it's 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 all over the place. Um, emotionally, we, we try to manage our emotions. And so on a, on a good day, our, our emotions are in check and, and um, we have faith and, and believe. And then there are other days where it's, it's more of a, a struggle. Uh, interestingly enough, she seems to handle it at times better than, um, than we do as parents. Uh, her, uh, it, one of the mo- more meaningful things she said to me when I told her, I said, I'm really proud of the way you're enduring this. She said, oh, Daddy, I, I, I'm not enduring this. She said, that implies kind of a passive response to something that's happening to you. She said, I've chosen to embrace this uh, and try to experience the goodness of God in the middle of what I'm going through. And she really has. I mean, she's she's a little powerhouse. She's documented her journey on a YouTube channel that has, um, it may have, have 8,000 followers now. And she just she just has collected a lot of people with chronic illness around the world that they're hurting and need hope. Um, and if it's done anything, it's helped us be aware of just how many people are everywhere, all around us are hurting every single day, physically and emotionally. And it's, it's given us more compassion and understanding and hopefully the grace to um, stand with some other people that are in, in really dark places right now. Um, I remember there was a day where you not only called the wider church to pray, but your church to pray, and people gathered around Mandy and um, mm-hmm. laid hands on her, the whole deal. We're often in that place as spiritual leaders, as church leaders, as pastors, where we are praying in faith. Um, and I don't know if you've ever had this, but like, I remember, and this is not a situation of Mandy, a young, barely 20-year-old woman who's fully alive except for this condition, but I've been in hospital rooms where, you know, the family is saying, we need to pray for healing, and it's pretty clear the 85-year-old is palliative, like mm-hmm. we've got hours left, mm-hmm. and that puts us in a, in a tense place. How do you manage that navigation? Because you know, as well as anybody does, that there's so many people who are not in church anymore because they prayed for healing for mm-hmm. somebody or for themselves and they feel their prayer wasn't answered and poof, there goes their faith. That's a mm-hmm. that's a very tough thing to manage, not only personally, but for your church and for the people that you're responsible for. How are you leading Life Church through that tension and, and the message through the book? That that's a great and super important question and and it's really complicated. Yeah. As well, because we we we, we want to. All things are possible with God. Yes. Um, as a pastor, one thing I do try to do is is try to help people see that like physical healing from an illness isn't the only miracle or the highest form of miracle. And and be real clear, people always die. You know, even like Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and then one day he didn't. You know, one day mm-hmm. Lazarus died, and and he went, and his his body is still in the grave, and so we kind of have to keep that in front of people a little bit. Uh, and in in no way does that undermine the possibility that God could heal, 
But at the same time, we don't want to elevate that type of physical miracle over the other miracles. of It could be the miracle of God's grace that, that sustains us in the middle of a loss. It could be the miracle of the body of Christ um, coming around us and helping us feel God's love through, um, through his people. Uh, so in the prayers, if you want to get real technical, what I do, and this is super intentional, is I never, I never don't ask for healing, but I kind of will qualify it at times. And I'll, mm. I'll ask for God to heal a person who's sick. And then I'll, I'll pray for the doctors because I believe that oftentimes God uses, um, not oftentimes, a lot of times God uses doctors and medicine and wisdom um, to help people get better. And so I'll, I'll kind of include that and, and not say we're just looking for a miracle that may happen right now, but the miracle may take three months and God might use a doctor to bring the miracle. Mm. And then I'll kind of give some sort of a, in, in the prayer, you know, and no matter what, God, we, we choose to trust you um, and we pray for your grace and, and strength to, to help people in their week. And so it's, it's not like I'm trying to water down any faith, but I'm trying to circle the whole thing and kind of to pastor people through what could happen that's beyond our ability to control. I know that there are some people in some church camps that would criticize that and say they have a lot, uh, that would be a lack of faith. I also know a lot of people that have died from treatable situations because they only had faith and didn't go to the doctor. And so I'm willing to take that criticism. I, uh, and I feel like that's a part of wisdom and pastoring is helping care for people, um, not discounting that God could do anything and we're gonna ask for miracles, but at the same time, not demanding a miracle that if it, we don't get it, that crushes somebody's faith. I, I know you you live in that same tension every day. Yeah, it's a very real tension. And what you're doing to a large extent with Hope in the Dark and in in you know your own family situation and all the situations you walk through with people is you're staring into the jaws of the theodicy. The question of if God is so good, why do we suffer and why do we have a world that that doesn't look like God is good, right? I mean, that's the subtitle of the book, Believing God mm-hmm. is Good When Life is Not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people, the spirit of our age, I thought about that when I saw your subtitle, I thought they'd flip it, believing life is good when God is not. I think wow. that's where <laughs> yeah. that's where people would automatically go. What are you learning about the theodicy? What are you learning about suffering and this this tension of believing in the goodness of God when it's just brutal? I, I think, I, I, I don't think, Thank you. I don't think we truly experience the goodness of God when life is good, because mm-hmm. then we're experiencing the goodness of life. I think we experience the goodness of God when uh, when the pain of this world becomes real. I think that in uh, it's so much more fun and easy to preach the God works all things together for good and God has a purpose for you and a plan for your life. It's more difficult to preach the uh, in this world you will have trouble. And yeah. consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials and temptation of many kind, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And so, uh, I, I think that if um, it, it, we enjoy God on the mountaintops, but I think we get to know Him intimately in the valleys. And so that's kind of where our family is right now. There's so many things in our life that's good and, and up and to the right, but there is so much. There's so much pain that. Uh, we're experiencing qualities of God that are rich and meaningful and life transformative that we would not experience if all of our kids were healthy and and um, there were no problems right now. What are some of the most meaningful things in, in the season that you're in right now that people have said to you that have helped or done for you that have helped? Because I think we're a lot of us are on the outside looking in going, Gosh, I don't know what to say. I don't want to offend them. I want to help. But uh, what what are some things that you would say? Wow, I will take that all day, every day. Thank you. I think w- one of the things I just kind of want to say is what we're going through is not nearly as difficult as what a lot of people are. So I don't want to. Yes. You know, Mandy hadn't died, and 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 so I, I just want to acknowledge it's um, it's a trial, but there's a lot of people that are hurting a lot worse mm-hmm. that would be listening even even to this right now. Um, We've had, if I told you thousands of people suggest doctors and treatments, that'd probably be a gross understatement. It's thousands and thousands. We're grateful for every single one, but honestly, we feel like we have incredible advice, 
Mandy's actually doing an online class, getting a degree. She she um, can probably, if not already, teach on this. She is a student and she's bright and she right. will be able to. So that's meaningful, but it doesn't it doesn't move the needle as much as honestly. Uh, every time I've talked to you, you've asked. I talked to a pastor this morning that, um, and he asked about her. And so it's just people caring that that means yeah. so much. Uh, and then just um, it kind of it kind of helps us enjoy. It. We had the whole family over last night. I'm usually stressed with the chaos, and I'm just kind of we're going to roll with it and um, just enjoy the moment. So part of that's I think being 50 years of age and kind of this stage of life. But I'm I'm trying to take imperfect moments and enjoy enjoy the perfection of God in imperfect moments more than ever before. And it's, it's really fun to do to do that. I'm, I'm embracing it. It's good to know that uh, you're not the only one who gets stressed out by chaos. So we just had a grand puppy. We don't have grandchildren. We had a grand puppy on the weekend, and we love him. But it's like, okay, time to clean the floors. You know, yeah, yeah it's all Puppies good. are stressful. What are some, un- you, you kind of went there, what are some unhelpful things because I think we all, you know, we've all been the recipient of unhelpful things that people say or do. So without naming names or specifics, but. I think, well, I think the obvious, and we don't get much of this, but I know some people do, is if you only had faith, God would heal you. <laughs> if you, um, you know, you must be doing something wrong. That kind of stuff is just brutal. And we have not gotten much of that at all. I think kind of um, emphatic advice, which is this thing's going to do it and kind of putting pressure on somebody, we get a little bit of that, you know, you have to call this doctor and you have to do, do this treatment. And so um, that's, you know, that, that can be tough. And, um, but honest, honestly, there's not much that's been negative from people. We, we mm-hmm. actually feel embraced and loved by people like crazy. And, and I've, uh, we do more giving than receiving as pastors, right? That's what yeah. that's our calling. And so to be in the receiving end of the love from the body of Christ has been one of the most refreshing uh, things that I've had in 28 years of ministry. I couldn't be more thankful for God's people. In the book, you talk about um, the church suffering because we offer up easy answers to tough questions about Mm -hmm. suffering, which I think is very fair. Uh, Are there any questions, like think about this from a preaching standpoint, talking to a friend over coffee standpoint, uh, are there any questions or maybe better, which questions about suffering that we ought to avoid and which ones remain unanswerable to you? You know, some things I've learned from Mandy is because she has to deal with anytime she goes out, there'll be, you know, if she sees a dozen people, close to a dozen will ask her. And um, asking, are you better? It's mm. kind of like asking, "Is this a good time?" It, you know, it puts you on this. It puts you on this place where you have to. You feel pressure to either lie or to be depressed because oftentimes mm. you're not better. And so, with Mandy, um, she's kind of coached me to say, "Hey, um, have you have some, have you had some wins you want to share?" So let's talk about oh. where there's where there's a win, where there's something good, rather than than are you better yet? Because that's you know, no, she's she's not better yet. Uh, I think. I think the other thing is, how can I help you when you hear that a lot? A lot of people find it difficult to actually say anything. And so intuitively, what we're trying to do now is just trying to just dive in and do some things to help because it's like kind of some sometimes the dishes will pile up because her husband's working, you know, 60 hours and she can't physically get up and do the dishes. So, hey, we'll go over and spend 45 minutes and just kind of straighten up the house. And let's not just say... Um, you know, or or let's you know go pick her up and go spend some time with her. So instead of just so is there anything I can do? Actually, taking an initiative and doing something can go a long way to to make a difference with people that are hurting that way. I've been really challenged on that. Uh, I had an opportunity to interview your good friends Levi and Jenny Lusco about the loss of their daughter, and I yeah, asked them the same people. question, and they they said, you know what? How can I help? Or if you need help, let me know. Is not that helpful. Mm-hmm. And it's better, it takes a lot more work to actually make a casserole or bring over a roast or something or uh, just say, you know, what, we'll take the kids for an hour than it does to ask a question. But that's pretty convicting. 
And then to then to go that over the distance is another thing too. For example, yeah, you know, when when someone dies, they they do have casseroles sometimes for the first week or two, and then six months later, they're they've been home alone for for weeks at a time, and no one's checked on them. And so sometimes it's out of sight, out of mind. What I'll do, Carrie, is just put a reminder in my calendar: three months from today, check on this family who had a loss. And oh, so when good. everyone else goes home. We might, it may even take, we may have to be that strategic about it, which is planning ahead of time not to forget by putting a reminder somewhere, but but staying engaged um, months later rather than just in the middle of the, in the, middle of the trauma. Uh, this is a bit of a personally motivated question, but one of the things I realized contributed to my burnout a dozen years ago was what my counselors and spiritual directors would call ungrieved losses, that ministry in life is a series of losses. Uh, I'm a guy, you know, we only have two emotions, happy, angry. And uh, so I didn't grieve my losses particularly well, and they all kind of came uncorked uh, in the summer of 2006. But I was surprised, you know, as, as, as a guy who's written a couple of books myself, sometimes you're looking for stories, right? Every other page of this book has got someone you know who was sick or lost their job or died or got a divorce or struggling through addiction. Like, it is just filled with story after You had no trouble coming up with content of people who are in suffering. When you think about even your role as a pastor, take the family out of it for just a moment— how do you grieve your losses? Like, how do you, when, when there is that much hurt, what do you do that makes sure that that doesn't just sneak up on you one day and take you out? I think that's, I wouldn't say I always get it right, but I do think that's, that is a problem for leaders. How do you lead when you're hurting? How do you lead when you're grieving? Yeah. And the, I think the thing we just, we have to remember is that we're, we're children of God before we're leaders of people. And, mm-hmm. and if we get, if we get the order mixed up, then we, uh, then we're not going to be healthy over time. And so it's, it's not easy to grieve publicly and, or to grieve while in public, let's even just put yeah. it that way, you know, to grieve privately while living a public life. But I don't know, I've, I've found that being transparent actually is, not only allows people to minister to me, but it also ministers to them. When they can find out that a pastor goes through things just like everybody else, you know, it's shocking for us to, they're like, yeah, you know, you're a real person? <laughs> you know, yes! <laughs> yes! Like, please, you know, but they, some people don't see that. Uh, they don't, you know, they, they want to, even they, even they want to believe it, but they don't really quite believe it. Their life's better than, you know, they don't have problems like everybody else. And so allowing them to minister to us blesses us and it also can minister to them too, because they get the joy of giving, and they also get to see um, someone else wrestle with the questions that they wrestle with, and still still try to cling to God, even when they're going through a difficult time. You touch on this in the book, uh, Hope in the Dark, but depression and mental illness. I, I often say to the people close to me, if there's one question I want to ask in heaven, and I firmly believe all of our questions on earth will melt away once we see what's really going on, but it would be like, what's the deal with mental illness and bipolar? Like, mm-hmm. I just, I don't get it. It almost seems intractable. And one of the definitions of depression that I've read that seems to resonate is depression involves a loss of hope. So how do you bring hope in the dark? when someone is in that dark? is Are there different guidelines for people struggling with mental illness? And I understand that is a big canopy term that means a thousand different things from schizophrenia to bipolar to split personality disorder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, it's a little bit above my pay grade, meaning you mm. know, I'm, not an, I'm not an expert at all. What I Me do too. know is that from, past, from a pastoral standpoint, I think we have to recognize that preaching and telling someone to have faith or read the Bible does not solve every problem. And I know that even saying that out loud right now will, you know, flare up and I get a lot of criticism, most likely from some people who listen to your podcast, but yeah, I'll stand by it. It just, it doesn't solve every problem. You can, you can, if you, if you, if you're $20,000 in debt, preaching and having faith doesn't make your debt go away. If you're right, I mean, you have to, you have to earn more and you have to pay it off. And so that doesn't solve every problem. 
if you've got a mental illness, uh, if you've got biological reasons that contribute to depression, then just telling someone to have more faith can actually be, uh, be, it can be counterproductive in, in their life. And so what we want to do is we want to say, continue to have faith, but let's also go to a doctor. And I don't think things are as bad now, Carrie, is, you know, 25 years ago, I went to counseling and I, re- I remember talking about that and people were like, oh, you went to counseling? You know, that's that's not spiritual and you shouldn't need that and you're a pastor and that's not really Christian. I think that's, I think that's ridiculous. You know, when, if you go to a good counselor, you could call it discipleship all day long. It's <laughs> someone with wisdom who's looking at you objectively and giving you spiritual advice or maybe even not spiritual, maybe just real life world pra- practical advice that helps you get better. And so I would just say to everybody, don't be, not only don't be afraid of counseling or therapy, but step into it. Uh, if um, and to some people think to take any form of medicine to help with mental anxiety or depression or whatever is unspiritual. I think that God can use the wisdom of um, doctors that to help uh, eliminate chemical imbalances in the body and help correct the brain. And so. I think that can be an answer to prayer. Uh, I don't think it's unspiritual at all. And and so I think in the church world, we probably need a little bit more, a little more awareness, a little more grace, a little more compassion for those who are suffering. Uh, and even starting by, you know, it, it may not be demon possession. It may not be a lack of faith. It may just be a real physical situation that um, that we need to have grace for and then help them get good advice that can both spiritual and physical that can help bring healing. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for going there. I, I agree. And I'm glad that I remember, you know, you went 25 years ago or whatever. I think it was 15. No, no, it was 20 years ago. I went to counselor for the first time. And I remember being mortally afraid of telling anybody uh, because of the stigma around it. And exactly the reasons you said, it's like, well, you're a pastor. You're supposed to have it all together. And, you know, my joke is, and, and this was pride, too. I send people to counseling. I don't go to counseling. Uh, but when I soon realized that all the issues in our marriage were not my wife, but me, um, <laughs> then, you know, there was something to work on. But she Craig, was right. She was, she was absolutely right. She was 100% right, Craig. <laughs> totally. So uh, I really admire your writing. Um, I read a lot of books, as you do, or listen to a lot of books. But you have a very lucid style. And Thank it's you. an easy read, but it is not a shallow read at all. Um, tell me about your writing process. How, how have you developed? You've written how many books now? Lots. I think that was I think that was the fifteenth. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah. So it's a lot different than the first three or four. The um, the first few were were really really painful. And uh, the great thing is, I, I'm guessing you probably had um, some good editors. Some are better than others. Yeah, I've been. I've uh, early on, I was blessed to work with some people that were uh, one guy and one lady in particular that they were really coaches to me, and they refused to do anything. They coached me on everything, and and so. I'd send them a document. I'd hope it would come back better and it wouldn't come back with changes. It would come back with suggestions for oh me to make it better. So that really, really helped. I think uh, in, in writing, what I, tried, what I tried to do in the book, Hope in the Dark, is I tried to be so honest that I would have, that the, that the publishers would tell me to pull back because it would be offensive rather than be pastoral and safe. And uh, they did at points even say, hey, if you say that, you're probably going to be criticized. And I knew that I was I was probably getting closer to honesty there than I was otherwise. If I feel like I'm writing in a way that's not going to be criticized, then I feel like my writing's not effective. That I've got to be transparent enough and vulnerable enough that I'm going to say some things that would cross the lines of traditional conservative Christian thinking. Um, because anybody can write a safe book but to write one that's vulnerable and connects with the heart, you, you have to, um, I think you have to ask some questions that maybe don't feel safe to ask, wade into some areas that seem theologically tricky, leave, leave some questions unanswered, say there's some things we can't answer, and kind of have some of that kind of tension to help grab 
um, the heart of a reader. And then you have to work real hard to do it all the way through. And if you'll notice, this book is shorter. Um, the next book I have coming out is shorter. I, I really believe a lot of books are way too long. Now I'm kind of like, why why write a 60,000-word book when you can say it in 20,000? Mm-hmm. And, and so what I want to do is I want every word to count. And I'm fighting for shorter books now. I'd rather have a short one that's filled with high-quality content than one that's longer that wastes, wastes anybody's time. Uh, you're the best. Nobody, 20 minute. nobody cares about that, what I just said, but I do. I hate when I'm reading a great book that's three times as long as it should be. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I hear what you're saying. And I mean, you do that on your podcast too. Would you, would you say that you are more vulnerable today than you were a decade ago or 15 years ago as a leader? I'd say a hundred percent. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. in fact, even right now I'm saying some stuff. I'm thinking, should I have said that? Should I have said that? But one, I trust you to I value your audience. And I think the older I get, the uh, the less time I have for uh, fake. That's the nicest way to say it. <laughs> I could think of other things, but I won't. Uh, no. I just, don't you? Don't you? I mean, oh, like, yeah. If we're be and, friends, and let's, let's, let's be real. My kids read manuscripts of my book, and they're like, Dad, you're like, you're naked. And I'm like, yeah. But I, I've noticed that in your leadership, having followed you almost since the beginning of Life Church uh, for years at a distance, uh, I just thought, I just think you're getting more passionate. I think you're getting more vulnerable. I think you are wearing your emotions on your sleeve a lot more than you used to. And I find that very endearing. I find that, um, well, as you say, not a leader who's right, but a leader who's real. And I think that realness really encapsulates what our world needs because we all think we're alone and we're not. You're right. And, and I, I appreciate what you do so much too because you you bring heart and you bring emotion out of people. And I, I think that's, as communicators, I think we tend to think that content changes lives. Yeah, I actually think content that creates emotion changes lives. Because you, content just gets us to think, but emotion gets us to act. And so I want content that creates emotion. And the, the, I guess the older I get, the more people I care about. And the, and so there's a, the, you're like, we've got deep, long, you know, decades of friendships and people around us. And then they have kids and we care about it. And so it kind of, there's the mixed, there's, there's the joy of caring more, but there's the weight and the burden of it. And so that's why I think I feel so emotional in this season of life. Uh, and I, I don't, I'm trying not to, as a guy that's not naturally that way, I'm trying mm. not to fight it off, but let it, let it mature and um, become whatever it's supposed to become. I wonder if there's a certain point, Craig, at which you just kind of, you've, you've been around the block a couple of times and you're just tired of seeing people struggle through the same issues again and again, or maybe some of the things that you struggled with as a young leader. And I think that's prompting me to be more vulnerable and more open. Anything similar going on with you? I think think a little bit of that and also more prophetic, which is just tell me what you think, you know, let's, (laughs) let's just, let's just cut through all the whatever. And let's just, and maybe it's because the schedule's so intense too, but uh, I think that when when you're dealing with a lot of complex issues and you care about a lot of people, then to to disengage the emotions makes the experience disingenuous. So I want to keep the emotions there, but at the same time, I don't want to I don't want to be in a room with people that we don't connect with as much. So I, I want to like the people I'm around more, and to do that, we have to be kind of prophetic and. The, the more successful you become in any form of leadership, the more people tend to tell you what you want to hear rather than what's true. Uh, I like the way our mutual friend Andy Stanley says it. How does he say it? If you are if you never listen to what people have to say, you'll... you'll yeah, you'll, if you... Sur- oh, yeah. How does he say it? Only he can say be, it that way. I know. He's a, he's I know a what it is. It's... If, uh, you're, and, uh, if you don't listen, you'll eventually be surrounded by people who have nothing to say. Bingo. Yeah, leaders who refuse to listen are eventually surrounded by people who have nothing to say. Correct. And so I want to fight to listen so the people around me will have permission to tell the truth. And I need truth from them and I want to give them truth. And, you know, if we want to get preachery, the truth will set you free. But it's, (laughs) it, it is, that's what I want. I want friends. I want 
vulnerability. I want truth. I want to be direct. Um, and let's do it in 20 minutes or less because a podcast has all I got. <laughs> you know, let's, just, let's, let's get in there and mix it up. You get, we just did three podcasts uh, in, in this episode. My last question for you before I let you go this round. Uh, you ran out of stock on your book. I know you and I were messaging back and forth on that when that happened. Was it out of stock for three weeks? It was out of stock on Amazon for three weeks and out of stock on shelves for four weeks. And then it was wow. back for a couple of days and out again. So My goodness. So it just, it outsold the print run, basically, right? It outsold right? the print runs, yes. So how did you handle that as a leader? Because that was immensely frustrating, I'm sure. Was there any way in which that was an opportunity? Because leaders, I mean, you teach on this all the time, right? Scarcity can be a source of innovation. I think, I think you know, I, I kept looking at, I reminded myself of Christmas toys that would run out and then, you know, this will date me, but everybody wants to tickle me Elmo or yeah. whatever it is, you know. So I, tr I had everybody tell me, this is great. The book's out. It's actually not great when, mm. you know, you want to be able to provide what people want. But um, yeah, I think it's ultimately in um, what we do, we can't let what's available or not available for two weeks or three weeks, whatever, s slow us down. We're in, in this for the long haul. So um, thankfully there should be books available today. And uh, the good news <laughs> is whether, whether the book's available or not, real hope is available every day, everywhere <laughs> through Jesus. And so that's, he's got that covered, whether, whether my little book's on the shelf or not. Uh, I can't thank you enough for more time together today. Does the book have a website or do they just go to craigrochelle.com or where, where can people find more? Yeah, it's, you can go to craigrochelle.com or uh, yeah, yeah, most place books are sold and there's no website, but it, it is called Hope in the Dark, mm -hmm. Believing God is Good When Life is Not. Once again, Craig, thank you so much. Hey, thank you. And I just want to say to you, you're, uh, the content you create, both in uh, bringing leaders from around the world and just delivering it straight to our iPhones consistently is a gift, but also the way you think and write. Uh, oftentimes when I'm researching, I'll type in different things and your, um, your blog will come up high on Google right in front of me on really key critical leadership issues. And so you have a you have a great ability to make big ideas simple and complex in a way that um, is easy to digest and move the needle. And so I just want to tell your listeners, make this a regular part of your uh, development. Listen to this podcast. Tell people about it. I think, Carrie, you're one of the, you're one of the best out there, and I'm um, honored to have you as a friend and, and to learn from you. Well, it's absolutely mutual, Craig. I've learned so much from you over the last 23 years of my own leadership and really cherish this relationship and uh, the generous amount of time that you invest again and again in leaders and, and today for my listeners. Thank you. Hey, thanks, sir. Wow, that was, uh, that was real. <laughs> that was honest. And don't you just find that that's the kind of conversation you need some days just to keep you in the game? That goes right back to the heart for this podcast. Uh, that I wanted to bring those backroom conversations into your earbuds. And Craig, just thanks for being so open. Um, if you have not picked up Hope in the Dark, it is a fantastic book. Uh, you can learn more just by going to the show notes. Go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 228. And um, you'll find everything there. All the links, some quotes from Craig, and a whole lot more. I also write a blog, and uh, we don't talk about that very much on the podcast. You know how you kind of have lanes, and it's like, oh, this is my podcast guy. But I also do a lot of writing, and you can find out more just by heading over to where the show notes are, and you can subscribe via email. That way you always get the podcast via email, and that way you always get the um, any blog posts that we write or anything else we put out. So you can find that at kerryneuhoff.com. If you can't spell that, which I understand, just go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. You'll find everything there. Uh, Craig's been on the podcast a number of other times, so we will link to all of his past episodes as well. They're all worth listening to, and we cover different subjects every time. Guys, I just want to say thank you. Uh, we are about a month and a bit away from Christmas. I know it gets busy for you. And so we're going to be cheering for you. We're going to be bringing you great resources that I hope can help. And in the meantime, uh, we're back next Tuesday with a fresh episode. In fact, I am going to have a conversation with, are you ready for this? Larry Osborne. Larry Osborne is back and we talk about, well, among other things, why he never uses an alarm clock, the key to staying fresh in leadership for decades, and the hardest part of raising up new leaders. Here's an excerpt.
I was very much the outlier. I still probably am in the outlier today, but there's nothing like 13,000 people in your church to cause people to not let cause call you an outlier. Okay. So the sad thing is, is when we had 150 and it grown by one in three years, no one listened. Right. And then when you start hitting multiple thousands, uh, or write a few books, uh, then people pay you, uh, to tell them. It's like, dude, I used to tell you this for free. (laughs) There's Uh, a lot of truth in that. Yeah. And and kind of the sad, sad part is there's a lot of wisdom out there that's not yet backed up by big numbers and we're not, we don't listen. So that is next Tuesday. Of course, if you subscribe wherever you get your podcast, uh, you'll get that automatically. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change and personal growth to help you lead like never before.